So I want to begin today by asking you if you agree with this statement. I think you will. I'm, I think I'm safe in this assumption. Out of 150 psalms that are recorded in the biblical book of Psalms, out of these 150 songs, these Hebrew hymns, which one would you say is the most well-known, the most famous of all the psalms? Would you shout the number out? Which one is it? You got it. Psalm 23. We all know that. And you also know immediately what is the, what's the imagery of Psalm 23? What's the, the, the metaphor or the illustration that David is using to describe his relationship with the Lord and the Lord's care for him? Well, we all know, don't we? It is the image of a sheep or a lamb under the care of his shepherd. And even though probably in our ordinary daily routines, we don't deal a lot with sheep, there aren't many shepherds among us, really any probably shepherds among us here today, we know a fair amount about shepherds and caring for sheep, even though we don't see a lot of it in our part of the world. Now, it's different when we go to the Holy Land. Every time we go to Israel, we commonly see great flocks of sheep and usually mingled with goats walking along the hillsides being led by one or two shepherds. You'll see a couple of hundred sheep and that those sheep may be under the care of one, maybe two shepherds. Oftentimes, young men, even boys who lead them. In fact, I brought a picture today to show you on both campuses. This was taken just outside of Jerusalem on the hillsides of the Judean wilderness. And you can see the sheep in the picture, but right up in front, sheep and goats actually, uh, in the picture. And right up in front, there is this, uh, this uh, single shepherd who is leading them along. This is a very common scene in parts of the world. In parts of the world, it is this shepherding business is a vital and a very visible part of their culture. In fact, many of you know that in ancient times, the wealth of a family was not measured in dollars and cents, but rather it was measured in flocks and herds, men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these were men who were, who were wealthy men in the possessions of flocks and herds that they had. Uh, you might remember from our recent study in the book of Job that the Bible says in Job chapter 1 verse 3 that Job was the wealthiest man in that part of the world. And listen to how it describes his wealth. It says that his portfolio was made up of this. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all of the people of the East. The word greatest means the wealthiest. He was the richest man in the East, and his wealth was measured not in dollars and cents, but in flocks and herds, sheep and camels and donkeys and livestock. That was how wealth was measured. And when, when Job chapter 1 verse number 3 says that he had all of these animals and then it says he had many servants, then you can know that at least some of those servants were in fact shepherds. If you have 7,000 uh, 7, sheep, then you have a lot of shepherds to care for those sheep. In fact, 
That's an important word. When you think of shepherding, you ought to think of the word care. Because this is the primary responsibility of any shepherd. It is the role of a shepherd to care for, to see to the well-being of the sheep. By the way, this is the reason that Psalm 23 talks about this care that God has for David, illustrated by the care that the shepherd gives to the sheep. Do you remember what he said? The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. I want for nothing. He takes care of all of my needs. I don't stress or worry about things because he is my shepherd. He takes care of my needs. Psalm 23 goes on to say, he leads me to green pastures. He leads me to still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the safe paths of righteousness. He guards and cares for me in difficult and dangerous situations. He prepares a table and feeds me. He anoints my head. He gives me a place to dwell at all times, even forever. All of these things are the descriptions of how the how the Lord cares for David and how um, the shepherd cares for the sheep. And because this primary responsibility of caring for the sheep was what they gave their time and attention to, every shepherd did, then in, in the ancient days, kings, in fact, not just in Bible times, but really throughout history, kings of empires came to be known as the shepherds of their kingdom because it was the role of the king to care for the people in his kingdom. If you'll go read, do it later, Psalm 78. Near the end of that psalm, and it's a long psalm, it's around verse 70, something like that, but Psalm 78, you will find where the Bible talks about how God took David, who was a, an actual shepherd, and made him to be the shepherd of the people. When he made him to be the king, God said, you're still a shepherd. You're now just shepherding my people instead of shepherding, shepherding your father's flock. Kings were called shepherds. And did you know that the Bible calls pastors shepherds? In fact, the word that's translated pastor in the Bible is a word which means shepherd. First Peter chapter number five, in fact, you don't have to turn, I'll just turn and read it to you. But in First Peter chapter number five, the Bible describes this role of a pastor as shepherding a flock. Listen to verse one. The elders, Peter writes, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the, of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Here's the pastor's job. Feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight or the care thereof, willingly serving those people and caring for them. And every pastor should know that his primary responsibility is to care for the sheep, but the sheep don't belong to the pastor. The sheep belong to the Lord. And he is the ultimate chief shepherd. In fact, listen to verse number five. Peter reminds every under-shepherd, every pastor, he says in verse number four, and when the chief shepherd shall come, when the chief shepherd shall come, he will want to take an accounting of his sheep. I've told you for years, by the way, it is that passage that puts my feet on the floor every single morning that this may be the day the chief shepherd will come and want to take an account of this flock. So here's, what, here's the theme that we're thinking about. God is a good shepherd. Kings are called shepherds. Pastors are are called shepherds. And today in John chapter number 10, 
we are going to see where Jesus affirmed what Peter says, that he himself is a shepherd. Not just a shepherd, he is the chief shepherd. And so let me welcome you to week number three. Week number three of this month-long series in October where we're thinking about the I am statements of Jesus recorded in the book of John. And do you remember the significant, important, foundational principle that we're learning and emphasizing every single week that has to do with these I am statements. I've said it to you for the past two Sundays. I'm going to say it again today. And yes, friends and neighbors, I'll say it again in the coming weeks because we're going to learn this and we'll never, ever forget it. It is the simple truth that Jesus is enough. If you believe it, shout amen. He is. Would you say it out loud with me, both campuses? Jesus is enough. One more time like you believe it. Jesus is enough. Amen. He's enough. Two weeks ago, we talked about the I am declaration of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am enough to sustain you. I am enough to satisfy you. I'm enough bread for you. And I will satisfy you for all eternity. I will give you eternal life. Last week, We talked about the fact that Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. John chapter number 8. I am the light of the world. I'm enough light. And if you will walk with me, you will not walk in darkness. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. Today we're in John chapter number 10 where Jesus is declaring, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, before we read the passage, and we're going to do so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10 in just a moment, but before we do that, let me, let me set the scene for you by just reminding you that last Sunday, we learned that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember that? He had gone to the Feast of Tabernacles where in that important, that significant Jewish celebration and festival, he had declared himself to be the Messiah in two ways. Remember, we talked about those two ceremonies and that Jesus took part in those ceremonies and took the opportunity to say, if you're thirsty, come to me, I will give you a drink of water and you will never thirst again. But the water that I give you will be a well of water springing up uh, in your soul, springing up into everlasting life. Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you a drink. And then secondly, uh, last Sunday we read where he said, I am the light of the world. He said that as they were uh, noticing the final flickering flame of that tower of light in the courtyard where they had thought about the glory of God that was to come. But Jesus took those opportunities to declare himself to be the Messiah. And because he did, he entered into a conflict with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They were angry about his claim. And in fact, if you read the second half of John 8, it's beyond the text that we read last week. We didn't have time to read it all. If you read all of chapter 8, you will find out that the last half of the chapter is all an argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. They're going back and forth. And it's not nice. In fact, let me show you John chapter number 8, verse number 52. Notice how ugly this gets. John 8, verse number 52, where the Pharisees say to Jesus, the Jews said unto him, now we know that you have a devil. (laughs) You're demon-possessed. 
we know that you have a devil. Abraham is dead and the prophets have died. And you say that if a man will keep your sayings, he will never taste of death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself to be? In other words, who do you think you are? You're saying if people follow you, they'll never die. Our father Abraham is dead. Are you better than him? And I want you to see Jesus' response. Look at verse number 56. In verse number 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Wow. Do you see what Jesus did right there? He just predated himself to Abraham, who had lived centuries before. He says, Abraham knew of me. Abraham knew of my day, the day that I would come, and he rejoiced in the fact that I would. Well, they're aghast at such a statement as that. And they respond, verse 57, and say, you are not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Now look at the next verse. Jesus says, Truly I say unto you, before Abraham was, read these words with me, I am. Look at your neighbor and say, whoa. <laughs> Jesus just threw down the gauntlet, man. He just said, listen, I am eternal. And not only did he claim divine nature to be God himself, to be eternal, he claimed that he was the very voice that had spoken to Moses out of the burning bush. Because they knew exactly what he meant when he said, I am. Do you remember Exodus chapter 3, verse 14? These Pharisees knew it. That verse says this, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, this is what you shall say unto the children of Israel. I am hath sent me unto you. God called himself, I am. And in the midst of this tense argument with the Pharisees, Jesus, when they say, Abraham knew you, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Here's what he's saying, I am God. Wow. Look at the next verse, verse 59. They took up stones to stone him to death. They weren't having any of that. And so they were going to stone him to death for claiming to be God in the flesh. But as Jesus sometimes did, verse number 59 says, he hid himself, he made himself unknown to them. Miraculously, he walked out from them. And the argument is over. It just makes me want to say, mic drop, before Abraham was, I am, and he's out of there. And the argument is over. Until chapter 9, verse 1. Because in chapter 9, verse 1, having de-escalated at the end of chapter 8, Jesus re-escalates. In chapter 9, verse 1, watch what happens. Verse uh, 1 says of chapter 9, Jesus, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from birth. And so he decided to do something about it. Look at verse number 6. When he had thus spoken, he spit on the ground, took the dirt, made clay with his spit, made mud, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. By the way, if y'all are listening, both campuses shout amen. Do you remember the pool of Siloam from last week? Do you remember the 
water libation ceremony where the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam and they would scoop up some water and they would come pour it out as an offering to the Lord and they would rejoice from Isaiah 12, 3, raise that water up from the well of salvation with joy because God is coming to redeem you. Immediately following seven days of priests going down and getting that water from the pool of Siloam and celebrating God's power and mercy. Jesus spits in clay, makes mud, puts it on the eyes of a blind man and says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He could have, he could have just done that. He, he could have just taken a, a canteen, a, a pitcher and gotten some water, but he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Imagine this blind man after seven days of the priest going down, getting water, this blind man making his way, someone leading him. He gets to the water and he reaches in like those priests had done symbolically. He reaches in and he pulls that water and he washes from the well of salvation and his eyes are opened. And in the same way that the priests had come back up rejoicing prophetically, he came back up rejoicing literally because his eyes were open and Jesus was saying, everybody who takes the water that I give him will come seeing and they will be redeemed. Wow. Now it's wonderful that Jesus healed the blind man. The problem was that Jesus healed the blind man on the Sabbath day. Look at verse 14, chapter 9, verse number 14. It says it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay. There's the sin. There's the problem. There's the violation of the law. You're not allowed to mix clay on the Sabbath day. So Jesus mixes the clay. He's violated the law. And beginning in verse 16, down through the rest of chapter 9, you have this, this, this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are... They're interrogating everybody. What happened to you, blind man? Were you really blind? Had you been faking all that time? Where are his parents? Let's get his parents and make sure he was a blind man. Did you see what Jesus did? What did Jesus do? And it's going back and forth, this interrogation of Jesus over what has happened until finally you come to verse number 24. And in verse number 24, they call the blind man back after interrogating everybody around, including his parents. They call the blind man back, and here's what they say in verse 24. Give God praise. As for Jesus, this man, we know that he's a sinner. Forget the fact that he just healed the blind guy. He's a sinner because he violated the Sabbath law. Give God praise. As for this man, we know that he's a sinner. And verse number 25 maybe is the greatest testimony in the Bible. Verse number 25, listen to what this blind man said. He said, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know. That whereas I was blind, now I see. Somebody shout amen. That's testimony, man. I was blind and now I see. Listen, if you know Jesus, this is your testimony. If you know Jesus, he's changed your life. And you ought to be able to articulate some ways in which he has changed your life. In fact, I've encouraged you in this before that you can write your own testimony. It goes like this. Jot it down if you haven't done it before. That you can, you can write out your testimony. You can share your testimony by sharing this. You can say, this is what I was before I met Jesus. That's what the blind guy said. I was blind. Before I met Jesus, this is what I was. Secondly, he said, this is what Jesus did for me. 
He told them in verse number 15. He spit in the dirt. He made clay. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go wash. I did. Now I can see. He told them exactly what Jesus had done for him. And thirdly, he said, this is how my life has changed. It's how it's different since I met Jesus. He says, I was blind, but now I see. Loved ones, there's, there's the model. There's the framework. There's the outline for your testimony. This is what I was. This is how I met Jesus. And this is how I'm different. And by the way, if you say, this is what I was, this is how I met Jesus, and my life is no different than it used to be, then you didn't meet Jesus. Because Jesus changes people. I'm not saying you're perfect now. I'm not saying everything has changed completely. But there are some changes happening if you've met Jesus. He says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I know this. I was blind and now I see. When you come down to the end of chapter number nine, look at, me, uh, look at verse number 40 with me where at the end of all this argument, the Pharisees look to Jesus and they ask sarcastically, look at the end of verse 40, are we blind also? What about us? You think we're like him? You think we're blind? And that question sets up the good shepherd discourse, which is in chapter 10. But essentially, here's Jesus' answer. Listen carefully. Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he says, you're not blind. You're thieves and you're robbers and you're hirelings and you're poor shepherds of God's people. But I am the good shepherd. Let's read it. John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door uh, into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter will open, and the sheep will hear his voice, and he calls his own by name, and he leads them out. And when he puts his sheep forth puts out his own sheep, he goes before them and his sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow but they'll flee from him for they don't know the voice of strangers. Verse 6 says, This parable Jesus spake unto them that they didn't understand what it was that he was saying. Verse 7, Jesus said unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man will enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, when he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling will run because he is a hireling. He doesn't care for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep and I'm known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have, 
which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Let's stop reading there for the day. I want to begin by pointing out to you that the first few verses of chapter 10 are a parable. Verse 6 references the parable that Jesus spoke. And so the verses preceding verse 6 are, in fact, a parable. And in the parable, Jesus uses a shepherd and the sheep and a sheepfold to demonstrate what is true about him. And so let's seek to understand the parable first, and then we'll talk about how these truths apply to Jesus and how that he is, in fact, our great shepherd. Now, look with me in verse number one, where Jesus talks about a sheepfold. Verily I say unto you, he that enters not by the door unto or into the sheepfold. So what is a sheepfold? Well, a sheepfold, very simply, is uh, the best way to understand it would be to say it's an enclosure. Uh, A sheepfold would be a large courtyard in a family home or a village compound. It's essentially home where the shepherds live, and the sheepfold would be the enclosure where the sheep stay when they're at home. It might be a courtyard. uh, It might be um, a a cave. Sometimes they would build their houses around caves, and they would use those those grottos as sheepfolds. Uh, It might be a built barn of sorts with wood, although that was less common, but it might have been something uh, like a, a shared barn. But these were large enclosures, and you could have many, many dozens, even many hundreds of sheep from different flocks in the family or different flocks from the village. They would all stay, all mingled together in that one sheepfold. The sheepfold would always have a porter, verse number uh, uh, Three talks about the porter opening. It's a, a, a doorkeeper or a guard. And Jesus says in verse number one that any person who comes to the sheepfold and does not use the door but rather climbs up over the wall or some other way, that person is, a, is up to no good. That person is a thief and a robber. Now, by the way, do you mind if I take one moment to do a quick aside, which I think is a good application of the text, but has nothing at all to do with the specific message I'm preaching today? If that's okay with you, would you shout amen? Okay, I was going to do it anyway, so thank you for the permission, though. If you could imagine with me for a minute in our culture that the, the home, the family, is the sheepfold that place of protection and care, and the parents of that family are the shepherds. And if the parents are the shepherds and the home is the sheepfold, then who are the lambs, the sheep within that sheepfold, under the care of the parents? It's the children. And so I just want you to know that if the family home is the sheepfold and the parents are the shepherd, Anyone that tries to get to the children without going through the door of the parents, any government, any school, any organization, any institution that says we have a right to your children, we can direct their lives, we can tell them what's good and what's bad, you have no input to it. Let me tell you what they are. They're thieves, they're robbers, and they're wolves. And you need to call it like it is. The parents are the shepherds that care for the sheep. It has nothing to do with this message, but it's important to say. Jesus says 
that in this sheepfold, if anyone is going up over the wall and not through the door, that person is up to no good. But he says that the shepherd, verse number two, will always go through the door. And when the shepherd comes, he comes through the door and he enters into the sheepfold and he calls his sheep. Now remember, in this sheepfold, there will be hundreds of sheep. Some are his, some are not his. They belong to everyone within the village or the compound. But he walks in and he simply calls his sheep. And because his sheep know his voice, they follow him and he leads them out. That's the picture that Jesus is drawing in this parable. Now it presents a truth for us that all of us need to admit to. And I want you to jot it down somewhere in your notes. It is simply to say that we all need a shepherd. We all need a shepherd. When you think about this passage and all that Jesus is saying, don't let the metaphor be lost on you. Sheep are generally mindless animals, okay? And they are largely defenseless. And they are prone to wander. And perhaps this is why Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we, like Sheep have gone astray. We've all gone off and followed our own way. We are in that regard like sheep. And the parable reminds us, the story that Jesus tells and his application reminds us that we're sheep and the world that we live in is a dangerous world. In fact, he talks about the dangers in this world. He says that there are thieves and there are robbers and there are wolves. And these thieves and robbers and wolves are out to get the sheep in the same way that the enemy of your soul is out to get you. And the world that you live in is out to get you. And even your flesh that you live in is not cooperating with your spirit. It's out to get you in a sense. Two agendas that the world, the flesh, and the devil have for you. Number one, it wants to deceive Satan wants to deceive you. It's what thieves and robbers do. They lie. They sneak in. They climb in. They tell you things that aren't true. And number two, he wants to destroy wolves that Jesus warned about that would come in and attack the flock and scatter the flock. We all need shepherds. Do you know what salvation will cost you? Listen to me. Do you know what salvation will cost you? It costs Jesus everything. But do you know what it will cost you? It will cost you your pride and self-reliance. It will cause you to say, it will cost you having to say, I need a shepherd. I can't figure this all out. I'm not good enough. I can't get to heaven on my own. I need Jesus to be my shepherd. And if you'll come to the place of admitting that, you will find that Jesus will in fact be for you a good shepherd. Would you jot that down? Jesus says it himself in this passage. He says, I am the good shepherd. He is. Jesus is the good shepherd. Now I want you to notice as you're jotting that down, look in verse number seven, chapter 10 and verse number seven, where he says, I am the door of the sheep. Look at verse nine. I am the door, he says in verse nine. Verse seven and verse nine says I'm the door. Verse number 12 He's, or verse 11, rather, he says, I am the good shepherd. Verse number 14, he says it again. I am the good shepherd. Verse 7, verse 9, I'm the door. 
Verse uh, 11, verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. Which is it, Lord? <laughs> Which are you? Which metaphor are we using here? Are you the door or are you the good shepherd? The answer is he's both. And while it might seem a little confusing to us, it wasn't confusing to any of Jesus' listeners at all. Because did you notice in the parable, he talks about the sheepfold, home, where all the sheep are together in the village at the compound. And the shepherd goes to the sheepfold and he calls his sheep and then the Bible says that he, verse 3, he leads them out. So the sheep didn't live in the sheepfold all the time. The shepherd had to take them out of the sheepfold, out of the village, and into the wilderness, just like the picture we looked at earlier. And for days on end, weeks on end, the shepherd and the sheep would live not at home in the safety of the village, but they would live in the wilderness, in the wild. They would live out in the desert. And as they would be out there, always they needed a safe place to come into. So do you know what the shepherd would do? He would always build a sheepfold in the wilderness. Now, he would do this by creating an enclosure that would be similar to, just smaller and more crude, but similar to the sheepfold back home. He would do this up against a rock uh, cliff face, perhaps, or, or maybe where a hill has an overhang. He would get tucked up in there. Uh, if none of those were available, he would take branches and stones and build an enclosure and leave an opening. And every night when it was time to go to sleep, or every time danger would come, the sheep would come into that sheepfold. And do you know what the shepherd would do? Where that sheepfold had an opening for the sheep to enter, he would lay down in front of it, and he would become the door of the sheepfold. And so he is both the door and the good shepherd. And what Jesus wanted us to know is that because we have been invited into his fold, he will always care for us. Why? Because he's a good shepherd. So here's what I want to do today in our remaining time. I want to give you six reasons that Jesus is a good shepherd. Now, every good Baptist pastor knows you never preach a six-point sermon. You preach a three-point sermon and a poem. I never use poems and rarely use three points. I'm going to give you six. I've got about six minutes to do it. 60 seconds per point. Are you ready? Six reasons from this passage why Jesus is a good shepherd. Number one, write it down. He's a good shepherd because he is our refuge. Jesus is our refuge. Look at verse number nine. He says in verse nine, I am the door. By me, if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved. Jesus says when he's in the field, he's using this metaphor of the sheepfold in the wilderness, the he being the door, and if you will come into the sheepfold, you will be saved. I don't think he means you will find salvation. I think he's talking about his sheep. They already belong to him. He's not talking about you will find salvation. He's saying that in this world, we're not home yet. Amen? We're not in the sheepfold yet. We're living in the wilderness of this world. Psalm 24, we're living in the valley of the shadow of death. And in this world, we have a good shepherd and he says, along the paths of life, when hardships come or danger arises or, or, or difficulties come, you can come to me. I will be your refuge. And with me, you are safe in my care. Jesus is a good shepherd because he is 
our refuge. Number two, Jesus is a good shepherd because he is our provider. Still, verse number nine, I am the door by me. If any man will enter in, he shall be saved and he shall go in and out and find pasture. Again, Psalm 23, he leads me to green pastures. It speaks of the sustenance that he provides for us, the the provision that he gives to us all along the way. He's a good shepherd because he's our provider. Number three, Jesus is a good shepherd because he is our purpose. He's our purpose. Look with me at verse 10, probably the most well-known verse of the chapter. Verse number 10, the thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and destroy, but I am come that they might have life. And then they might have it to the full or have it more abundantly. Do you understand that the thief and the robber and the, and the wolf, all of these, the enemy of your soul, the world that you live in, and even, yes, your flesh in some ways, that these things want to take from you. Satan wants to rob you and steal from you and use you and abuse you. But Jesus came not to take from you but to pour into you and to give you purpose and joy. In life. He's a good shepherd because he's our refuge and he's our provider and he's our purpose. Number four, Jesus is our good shepherd because he is our protector. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He says the same thing in verse number 15. As the father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus came to protect us from the enemy to protect us from the guilt and penalty of our sin. He's protected us from the flames of hell by his death and resurrection. And he has laid down his life for us. Jesus is a good shepherd, number five, because he is our friend. He's our friend. Verse number 14, listen to this amazing verse. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known of them. Can I tell you something about your good shepherd? He knows you. Are you listening to me? He knows all about you. He knows the the virtues and the victories, but he also knows the faults and the failures. He knows your stumblings and your your hardships and your hang-ups and your hurts. He knows all about you, and he loves you deeply. But not only does he know you, he lets you know him. What grace is this? That the unsearchable Christ, the one we could have never known without his grace, he has revealed himself to us through his word and by his spirit. And now we have this friendship with Christ. He is a good shepherd because he's our friend. Finally, he is a good shepherd because he is our peace. Verse number 16, a little snapshot, just a little peek ahead that Jesus was giving them that I don't think they understood at all and even the disciples didn't. But he says in verse number 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold, and there shall be one shepherd. He's he's alluding to the calling of the Gentiles. He's talking about us. We are those other sheep that he has called into his sheepfold, and we are now one at peace with him and with others. Listen to me. There's one fold. There's not a Jewish fold and a Gentile fold. There's just one. There's not a rich fold and a poor fold. There's not a western fold and an eastern fold. There's not a white fold and a black fold. There is just the sheep fold of Christ. And he is the good shepherd. 
And when he says there are other sheep that I must call and they will hear my voice, maybe on this day he was talking about you. What do you think? Maybe today God brought you to this service for this moment, for this reason, that the good shepherd who laid down his life for you, that you would hear his voice and follow him and be in his flock. I hope that if you don't know Christ, that you'll trust him. I want to close our service today by reading to you a benediction from Hebrews chapter number 13. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Would you, on both campuses, would you just maybe close your eyes and just hold your hands like this, like you're receiving a gift. And I'm not getting weird on you, but I just want you to sort of in a physical way say, God, I'm, I want to receive this. Both, both campuses. Let me close our time thinking about the good shepherd with this benediction. The writer says, Now may the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may he make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.